FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. This is an extraordinary day in the city of Atlanta and really for the entire state of Georgia and the nation. It's the day that uh, John Robert Lewis will be laid to rest. His funeral will be held at Ebenezer Baptist Church starting at 11 o'clock this morning. Three former presidents, President Obama, President George W. Bush, President Clinton, are all expected to be in attendance at the service. Um, He will then... And by the way, uh, NPR will be carrying that uh, funeral, and uh, all of the GPB radio stations across the state will cover it. You could also uh, hear it on our uh, social media platforms, our Facebook page, GPB radio. It's all over the place. Um, John Lewis, the funeral cortege will then take John Lewis to Southview Cemetery, which is basically directly south of downtown Atlanta, about 15 miles and it, it's where uh, Lillian, his um, wife, was laid to rest back in 2012. He'll have a plot next to her. But Southview is, the, is, a, is exactly the spot where the Lewises should be. If you look at their website, their homepage says that the cemetery was founded in 1886 under the premise that a dignified burial place should be available for all. From its inception, these hallowed grounds have carried no restrictions as to race, creed, or religious affiliation, as did many Southern cemeteries operating during that same period. So it is um, precisely the place where John Lewis, who fought for equality and justice his entire life, uh, should be laid to rest. We're going to talk about his life and career in a different way today. You know, Um, When you think about it, we've been losing so many of the great civil rights leaders of the generation that fought those battles back in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. Um, Most recently, of course, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis died on the same day. Joseph Lowry died uh, not long before that. But we've also lost Ralph Abernathy a long time ago, Hosea Williams, Reverend James Orange, so many of those who fought for justice across the South. And and so a lot of people are saying, well, who's next? Who is going to pick up the mantle of a seeker of social justice? And on today's show, we're going to talk to three younger people, all of whom have said they're committed to doing just that and to one extent or another have been inspired by the life and works of uh, John Robert Lewis. Kevin Riley is with me, as he is on Thursdays for our conversation. Kevin, as I said uh, to you before the show and on the air, I've been looking forward to hearing these voices for a long time because the movement will move forward and there is new energy behind the the cause. Yes? Uh, There sure is, Bill, and I'll just say I'm excited about this show and honored to to be talking to these folks and to be with you on this uh, historic and emotional day for all of us. Good to have AJC editor Kevin Riley as part of this show. So let me introduce uh, our panel. Hannah Joy Gebrselassi is a community advocate and founder of the Promote Positivity Movement. Hannah, you studied journalism at Northwestern University. Uh, came back to the South. I think you started your TV reporting career in the South. Am I right about that? Yes, right here in Atlanta. I was doing positions around the city and then moved to Southern Illinois to continue working there. You're the daughter of Ethiopian refugees who uh, came to the United States about six or seven years before you were born. And um, you, uh, in, in the context of what we're going to talk about today, um, when, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, of Ahmaud Arbery, Rayshard Brooks, uh, you were one of the leaders of the protests that took place, the peaceful protests that took place in, uh, at Centennial Olympic Park, correct? 
Yes, that is correct. Yep, we were with the line of solidarity in front of the Centennial Olympic rings, and we protested in the same spot 50 days consecutively until we switched over to virtual protesting with the numbers, of course, of COVID going up. Yeah, Hannah got uh, COVID-19 and had to uh, step back and self-quarantine. And it is fascinating, Hannah, that you are continuing your demonstrations virtually online every night, I think. Yes? Absolutely. I know that's what Representative John Lewis would want us to do, continue making good trouble and going, (laughs) right? Well, we're looking forward to hearing more uh, from you about John Lewis and about the work that is of um, meaning to you right now. Uh, James Whittle uh, joins us as well. Um, James is uh, the youngest president of the Georgia NAACP. Are you the youngest president, James? You're 26 years old, I believe. Are you the youngest president ever elected to that position with an NAACP chapter anywhere in the United States? Uh, good morning, Bill. And yes, I am. It's, it's been a, an extraordinary journey, for, to say the least. <laughs> you're uh, also in. Uh, uh, you're also now certified as a minister, a Southern Baptist minister. Um, you are, and you're working uh, at least part time at Pe- Pleasant Grove Baptist Church in Marietta. Um, but you're uh, in. Uh, you're in school to get your to get your full uh, degree as a minister um, in the Baptist Church, right? Yeah, so I'm I'm a third year a senior. Final, thank God, finishing up at the Morehouse School of Religion within the Interdenominational <laughs> Theological Center. Um, it's been a journey as well. <laughs> Um, well, we're really excited that you're here. You ran for state rep, by the way. We should point out you're you are former. You're in the Na- Georgia National Guard. Are you still an active member of the National Guard? No, I was in the United States Army Reserve. Um, I did that for eight years. Oh, Army I'm no Reserve. Longer, yes, sir. Okay. And I'm no longer in. Uh, I finished my career in 2019, uh, early 2019, and now I'm full time uh, student ministry as well as activism. So. Well, we're looking forward to hearing uh, your stories as well. Royce Mann, Royce, you're the youngest member of this panel today. You are 18 years old, graduated from Grady Hospital, uh, Grady says, yeah, high school, and uh, you're now headed to uh, Emory University as a freshman this fall, but your age should not in any way diminish the impact that you have tried to have and have successfully had in the activism that you so deeply believe in. You organized the Georgia March for Our Lives here uh, after the Parkland massacre. You um, actually, and we're going to talk more about this in a little while, uh, you were singled out. Bernice King uh, heard a poem that you wrote called White Boy Privilege that you recited and was picked up on YouTube. She was so moved by what you wrote that she invited you to participate in the King Day celebration at Ebenezer Baptist Church back in 2017. And you you recited a different poem that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But uh, And, Royce, you've known John Lewis because your parents uh, knew him well, worked on his behalf since you were a little boy, right? Yes, I have. And thank you so much for having me. And I'm so honored to be included um, with the other guests today. Um, but yes, my family uh, knew Congressman Lewis um, for my whole uh, time growing up. We, we've lived in his district uh, my entire life. And so uh, that sense of, of servant leadership, of good trouble, of acting by doing and walking the walk and talking the talk that John Lewis embodied his whole life. Um, that was sort of my first introduction to political representation and to what it, what it meant to have somebody represent me in government. And I was so lucky to have somebody like, like John Lewis, who, who not only I felt like represented my values incredibly, but also was present in the community and like so many of his constituents. I was lucky enough to meet him a, a number of times. All right. Panel is well introduced. Uh, Kevin, John Lewis left us a surprise, which um, 
I didn't see it initially in this morning's New York Times. Sam Burmis Dawes caught it, ca- uh, called it to my attention. Uh, it turns out, Kevin, that two days before uh, Congressman Lewis died, he sent an op-ed piece, an essay, to the editorial department of the New York Times with instructions that they publish it on the day of his funeral today. And I'm just going to read a tiny bit of it. Uh, And then, because, Kevin, it speaks to the young people who are on the show today. He starts by saying, while my time here has now come to an end, I want you to know, and he's talking about all of you on this show today, that in the last days and hours of my life, you inspired me. You filled me with hope about the next chapter of the great American story when you used your power to make a difference in our society. Millions of people motivated simply by human compassion laid down the burdens of division. Around the country and the world, you set aside race, class, age, language, and nationality to demand respect for human dignity. That is why I had to visit Black Lives Matter Plaza in Washington, though I was admitted to the hospital the following day. I just had to see and feel it for myself. After many years of silent witness, the truth is still marching on. Uh, it goes on, Kevin, and we'll post a link to it on our social media uh, pages, but uh, it was it, it's a very powerful statement, and Kevin, I think appropriate for the conversation today. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard to make it through uh, the statement without, you know, tearing up, to be frank. Uh, the line that um, really got me was the one where he says, Emmett Till was my George Floyd. I mean, it's very yeah. powerful. Yeah. Yeah. He, he also says in this essay, democracy is not a state. It's an action. I thought that was an extraordinary observation to make. James, let me start with you. Democracy is not a state. It's an action. What, what does that mean to you? When we look at uh, what Congressman Lewis, his entire career was, was about, how it began, how it continued, and ultimately how it concluded, um, and we look at where we are today with, you know, elections that are going on as we speak. We're in an election process currently for runoffs, and it's an action. Um, it's a state of mind. It's a state of being where people's voices are valued more than any other enfranchise in the entire community that we are in. And so for it to be in some ways restricted as far as access, as far as participation, as far as opportunity for those voices to be lifted, and not just people who are privileged and have jobs, but even some of our felons are returning citizens. Some of our, you know, uh, our, our friends and neighbors who are, might not necessarily be what we consider to be the stereotypical American, if you will. And so our, our job, our role is to really embody the very framework, the very value that makes, quote unquote, democracy work. And how have you acted on that, James? What's your role in all of that? Well, the role is, is, is multifaceted. One, we have to encourage every single person in our community to vote. But not even just that, because our communities are saying we tried to vote and this is what happened. And so as far as the activism and the work that goes into embodying that ideal, we have to hold our elected officials accountable first and foremost. We, secondly, we have to do our part into ensuring that there is civic education and holding our elected officials look like, let's give them a scorecard. Let's tell them that they're not doing a good job. Let's tell them that they are doing a good job and then actually fight the, the, the good fight of challenging these institutions that continue to put, you know, voter suppression and, and access to the ballot box on the agenda. And so th- those are just two of, you know, very high level specific ways um, that we've kind of had that embodied here at the NWCP for the last several months. Hannah, um, you have a YouTube uh, a program now called Hannah Joy TV. And, and it, it's what, one of the things you try to do with that, I think, it's fair to say, is reinforce the most positive values about who we are capable of being as people. 
um, which it strikes me is very much about the lesson of John Lewis. When I asked Theron Johnson some of the words he would use to describe John if he were able to speak at his funeral, Theron, yesterday on the show, Theron's first comment was, I would talk about his sense of humor. People don't realize he had a sense of humor and made people uh, smile. He gave them hope through his laughter. Um, what, what are your takeaways from uh, uh, your understanding of the life of John Lewis? He certainly did bring people joy and make people smile. And you saw it in, in all of these videos that showed up most recently with him dancing at, you know, different meetings and, and in the Capitol and everything. And those moments were just so powerful because even through the struggle, he somehow found a way to smile. He found a way to dance. And I think that attitude really, really um, is important and should translate into our new generation because it's, it's certainly a heavy fight. And he's been, he's been fighting this fight since he was a young child. So to see him in that, not just be bold and resilient, but also find moments to smile. And, you know, also I think of, I think of all of that. And I also think of, again, resilience, resilience. He fought as he was leaving earth. He made history as he was leaving slash transitioning, you know, and we see him continuing to fight when he's not even trying. It's just in his DNA. It's in his blood. And, you know, many of us saw him at the Georgia State Capitol three weeks before he passed away, still showing up to work, still fighting, still being present. And to know that he was, you know, going through this journey with cancer and still showing up for the people. I mean, that right there, that is what one of the biggest things I will hold on to, like knowing that he he still fought until the very end and made it clear that no matter what state you're in, no matter what situation you're in, you can always find something to be optimistic about and some way to continue to be resilient. So, Royce, I was going to ask, ask you about this since you talked about how you knew uh, uh, Congressman Lewis for, for a long time and, and through your youth, because he did seem to embody something that has become very popular today, which is, you know, being in the moment, some mindfulness or what, you know, whatever term you use, where at any given moment, he seemed very much to be aware of what the possibilities were at the time. And, and that has come across as people have talked about the pictures they've taken with him, the time they spent with him in big and small ways. He could connect to people in a moment in, in a way that's a rare gift. And you've probably seen that firsthand. Yeah, that is so true, Kevin. Um, Congressman Lewis, while he has gotten this sort of status as a, a real-life superhero in large part due to his actions that definitely deserve it, as well as the graphic novel series March, which I and many other young people have read, you know, he's, he's, he's been this larger-than-life presence in my life, but having those encounters with him, recognizing how, how down-to-earth he, he is and, and seeing him dance at, at Democratic events and, and laugh and joke around, that, more than anything, that just shows that anybody can do what John Lewis does because he's just like anybody else. He's, he, he was just, just a regular person who just felt, felt a need to do something. Well, you know, you made reference to that graphic novel. And so uh, one of the times that I really got to observe Congressman Lewis up close was at the 2013 Decatur book festival, because that was when the graphic novel came out. He was the keynote speaker and one of the things that was so amazing to see is at the book festival, the, Age, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had a tent where he came for an hour, what was supposed to be an hour, to sign the book. You know, people could buy a book, come through, meet in, take a picture, have it signed. And, of course, there was a line, like, all the way through downtown Decatur, uh, way more people than we thought would ever, you know, would ever get through. And as you watch people come through the line, he would talk to someone like, in that moment where he, it, he, it was as if he had nothing else to do in the world. 
and that he was completely unaware of all the people waiting and made that person in that moment as he signed their book, as they took got a picture with him, feel like he was their top and most important concern, and he really had nothing else on his mind. And I think that powerful connection is, is such a gift, and it's such a rare gift. Uh, and he had it in, in all these steps in his life that must have been why he had such great influence and, in the end, such a uh, moral standing with people. I, you know, I do want to, it's interesting, uh, to, to, I'll give each of you a chance at this. I may have to wait till after the break, but I'll po- pose the uh, uh, question, the theme, right now. Um, Jim Galloway had a fascinating column in yesterday's uh, AJC in which he reminded us that John Lewis, the young John Lewis, who uh, was beaten badly uh, during the Freedom Rides, the bus rides, obviously uh, beaten badly at Selma, uh, went through so much trauma as he as a very, very young man, um, and then became president of SNCC, which put him in the position of being able to speak at the March on Washington, an extraordinary uh, honor for him. Uh, he then was ousted from SNCC by Stokely Carmichael, who wanted to take SNCC in a more militant direction, And as Jim's column points out, for quite a few years, John Lewis was kind of in the wilderness, not quite sure what his life was going to be all about. And the reason I bring all this up now is, and of course, he, in 1986, gets elected to Congress, lowly backbencher, moves up in the uh, leadership and in terms of respect in Congress. But the reason I mention all this now, um, Hannah, is... That graphic novel, that series of graphic novels, March, was really something that put John Lewis's legacy and ongoing work at that point into the eye of younger people. I'm not sure younger people had quite the understanding and appreciation of what he had been through much earlier in life. And even John's own aides say March was a big effort to kind of relaunch the Lewis brand. Hannah? Yeah, and this is something so great to see because, you know, as someone, a child growing up in Atlanta, I will say, you know, I looked up to Representative John Lewis, but I I sure wasn't aware of all the details of the history. I really wasn't as a young child. And so to know that these kids are getting their hands on this fruit, on, on these gems at an early age in a digestible way, I think that is so, so powerful because imagine what's going on in their heads. Imagine how they're already starting to process it. You have little girls and little boys that are already starting to be young John Lewis's in this moment. So in 2020. So I'm so happy to see that, you know, this type of um, this type of work exists and and will continue to exist. And I think uh, with with Representative John Lewis's legacy is going to continue to inspire. It's a timeless legacy. His legacy will inspire people for the rest of the world's existence. Because when you practice this nonviolence approach, when you practice this um, strategic approach, when you practice this approach that centers around compassion and humanity, you will never fail. And he certainly never did because he held on to those values and more. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to see these types of, um, you know, stories being shared. And I'll continue to even read them because they teach me new things every time. And, and you know, it's interesting because... When we talk about carrying the legacy, when we talk about civil rights and human rights activism, when we talk about organizing and leadership within these spaces, one thing that we never talk about is the dark side of the wilderness. And it's a very lonely place. When you're doing this work, most people, they congratulate you, they celebrate you because you're doing what's what's favorable and what's beneficial to them. But the moment you take a stand that is different than what the status quo suggests you should take, they will crucify you. And in many ways, what uh, John Lewis has experienced is what so many people that often go unnamed almost always be black women. And let's be very clear that that legacy is inclusive of them too, because there are so many people that we often lose sight of, that we silence, that we disregard and throw to the side because they're not politically respectable. They're not what we consider to be what is quote unquote right. And so that wilderness process is so integral to being resilient, to showing that no matter what is the circumstance, no matter how accepted we are, 
that we still have a fight before us. Because when we talk about, and John Lewis in 1963, he talked about it then, and we talk about it today. There are people literally dying right now. And all we have the, 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 the appetite politically to do is talk about symbology and symbolism and, and moments of solidarity and not actually go to the heart of the issues of why we are actually having to, quote, unquote, fight the good fight. It's not niceties, but it's actual lives that we're talking about here. Um, we got to take a break. When we come back, um, Royce, I want to uh, turn to you and uh, talk a little bit about your activism. And I do want people to hear the poem that you read at the King Day celebration because it's very pertinent to the conversation uh, that we're having. By the way, just as a final note before the break, when I say John Lewis uh, felt he was out in the wilderness uh, in the aftermath of being thrown out of SNCC, uh, Galloway in his column points out, that uh, John Lewis didn't even feel. He was invited to be at the funeral service for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but didn't feel he was part of them, that group anymore, and ended up not even being in the church that day. So he had a long way to come back to achieve the uh, place in history uh, that he continued to have uh, when he was recognized again for his greatness. All right, we're going to take our first break in the show right now and come back with more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. On Political Rewind today, on the day of John Lewis's funeral, we talk to younger activists um, about how they are being inspired to do the work that they're doing, uh, thinking about what John Lewis's legacy is. Uh, Hannah Joy, Deborah Selassie is with us, Reverend James Woodall and uh, Royce Mann. Uh, Kevin, before we turn to Royce Mann and talk a little bit about and listen to the poem that he wrote for the King Day celebration a couple of years back, uh, it's hard to... Uh, underestimate how historic this day in Atlanta really is. Three former presidents at Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, the church that uh, Reverend King himself uh, preached in, that his father, A.D. King, uh, preached in. I mean, it's an incredibly important place. And, And Kevin, it has always been the church where particularly the African American community in the South comes together to heal, to celebrate, uh, to look for uh, 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 collegiality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the place, right? And uh, we had a uh, story uh, by Ernie uh, Suggs, our reporter, who's been really leading the coverage on this, where he talked about how it has become that place, and um, people have gathered there. Uh, for for many reasons and for many times to to come together and celebrate a life or create the history of a moment. And um, I think the world's eyes are focused today on that church on Auburn Avenue. Um, all right, Rice, let's talk a little bit about how you found yourself at a King Day celebration. Uh, and, and, and the reason it, it matters here, I think, is because it was knowing John Lewis as you were growing up, I think it's safe to say, that inspired you to think about social justice in the extraordinarily uh, sophisticated ways you've done that. We, it, this all began with a poem you wrote. Was it at Grady High School? Was it a, a, a Grady High School event called White Boy Privilege? What was, what, what was that poem What was that poem about? Yeah, and just real quick, it was um, actually a, an event at Paideia, at the Paideia School. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, so so it was a spoken word piece um, about white male privilege, really coming from the point of view of um, a young white man coming to terms, um, which I was at that point, with what my privilege meant in terms of 
uh, how I would be treated by society, by my peers, and especially by um, systems in this country, and how I could leverage that privilege and hopefully use it as a positive tool to um, create good trouble. And <laughs> and so uh, Dr. Bernice King uh, ended up seeing a video of that poem that was online, and she invited me to come to Ebenezer to speak as part of the MLK Day commemorative celebration, um, which was the honor of a lifetime. And I wanted to just add that on top of being a place of community, a place of healing, that Ebenezer is also a place of organizing, and that over the last two years, I've been to a number of organizing meetings around racial justice, gun violence prevention, economic justice at Ebenezer. Um, of course, Reverend Warnock is now running for U.S. Senate, and so it is a space that really embodies this, converg this convergence of moral and spiritual values and social justice. I'm glad you said that. That's important. Okay, so you came to the King Day celebration in 2017. You had a new poem that you wanted to share. Uh, who, do, who spoke right before you got up as a, what, 17, 16-year-old person at that point? Who was the previous speaker, Royce? Yeah, I had to follow Senator Bernie Sanders, which was a bit daunting. <laughs> um, but Let's go ahead. I, I was I was honored that right afterwards he came over and very briefly and in his Bernie Sanders voice said, good job, man. And so <laughs> <laughs> let's listen. Probably not, we might, maybe going to hear the whole thing, but let's listen to at least a portion of that poem as you recited it at the King Day celebration uh, that morning. Here it is. Let's rise up. Let's rise up with those overlooked and undervalued by society. The black man who walks down the street on the way to his job, it's his first day as an eighth grade English teacher. The same black man who has a son, his most prized possession, who told that son that life will be hard, but anything is possible. The black man who walks down the street on the way to his job, only to pass a woman clutching her purse a little too tightly. Let's rise up with the boy who was a girl then didn't know what he was and is now a boy. The boy with the parents who loved their daughter but disowned their son. Let's rise up with the Muslim woman who works for the Justice Department only to experience injustice every time she wears a hijab. Let's rise up and lend a hand to the boy who can't, the boy who sits in a wheelchair watching the other kids play basketball, the boy who becomes the only one in his class to win an Olympic gold medal. Let's rise up with the woman who was born in the U.S., whose parents are Dominican and whose son is all American, so why is she repeatedly told to go back to Mexico? Let's even rise up with the poor white boy. The one who is told he is privileged but doesn't feel that way. And yes, this boy does exist. The boy who talks about the pool his family doesn't have and wears the shoes his mother can't afford. He was given everything right, so it must be his fault. Right, wrong, because as one YouTube commenter said, life can be hard if you're white, but life will never be hard because you are white. Let's rise up with a young Native American poet. She speaks wisdom, but no one listens. The poet who should be on this stage right now, the poet who instead has to hear a white boy speak for her, let's rise up. Because once we do, that glass ceiling will be in reach, and trust me, it is breakable. Once we do, we will be able to see over any wall, no matter who pays for it. Once we do, the sky will truly be the limit Scratch that, there will be no limit. Martin dreamed when it was time to dream. Rosa sat when it was time to sit. Barack ran when it was time to run. Now is the time to rise, to rise up together as one. Rice, rice man, 
Such a powerful poem. Um, I think listeners on our show know now that we use WebEx just to see each other while we're doing the show. We can't broadcast, unfortunately, the images. But James Woodall, I saw you sitting there with your eyes closed. Um, Mm -hmm. Hannah, you were transfixed by Royce's poem as well. And, And James, it occurs to me that one of the things we heard coming out of the uh, the the protests after uh, George Floyd was murdered, uh, and when Black Lives Matter suddenly gained a respectability that for years it had been denied, um, we heard the black community say, it is now white people who have got to hold themselves accountable. It cannot be completely on the backs of black people. And that, I think, James, is one of the reasons, and I want Hannah to re- answer this too, one of the reasons that these demonstrations seem to have given so many people like John Lewis so much hope is that we're not talking about segregated marches. We're talking about white and black people coming together uh, to uh, promote social justice. And, and it feels like an entirely new movement in many ways. Do you feel that, James? And then you, Hannah? I, I would respond yes and no. So for me, this is not a black and white issue. Because the moment we relegate this to social constructions of race is the moment we lose the fight. This is a fight against humanity that is not just about African-Americans. This is just like Roy said. This is about so many people, so many communities that are literally being dehumanized every single day. And so what we saw at the March on Georgia that the NWC led on the 15th of June, what we saw in Minneapolis, what we saw in Louisville, what we saw in Portland, what we saw in Seattle, were human beings saying that we are done dying. That's what we saw. We didn't see black people coming together with white people. We saw human beings building community to suggest and to demand that justice truly roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And in, in that, it says nothing about color. And so though I am a black man, an African-American, but I'm a human first. And the humanity in the promises of this country is what makes this country promises so great. And so our work, our movement, our efforts, our organizing, our advocacy is around involving the humanity of all people. And when we humanize those who have been oppressed for so long, we can truly make true the promises of this country. That's a wonderful. I would argue a little bit, James, that in previous uh, generations, uh, say the Black Panthers, who uh, accomplished a lot of important work in their various communities around the country, were demonized by whites uh, for for their uh, some of what their behavior was. But in fact, uh, did a lot of good work. But they wanted to be uh, self-contained black activists working for their own freedom, which is why I do say that the coming together of blacks and whites does have a, a value, James. That That's true, isn't it? Most, most definitely, and, and I can't blame them for that. For 400 years, our people, our, the African-American community has been oppressed and dehumanized and violated and, and murdered. And so I can't, I'm not necessarily responding to their position of black nationalism, of black community, of, of you know, inclusive. Because there are some sectors of community that suggest that you need your own isolated community. I'm not necessarily responding to that. I think at the heart of everything that we're seeing is a need for humanization because what we've experienced is dehumanization. Yeah. And so I, 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 you know, I, love I, I support them. I support them. I love them. They, they, these are my family members. These are my friends. But I just have a different perspective as a leader that at the heart of these issues is not an issue of social construction, but rather an issue of humanity. I suspect John Lewis would be right there with you. I love that. Hannah? Yeah, Representative John Lewis always talks about how we live in this house, right? And I think that that is so powerful. We should all be able to live in this house, right? However, there are a lot of forces right now that don't want us all living in that house. So it's it's absolutely, we got to be real about that. There's so much racism. There's so much white supremacy. There's so much, you know, tension. And so, um, you know, our... We welcome everyone and anyone from all over the world to come out and to, you know, James's point, absolutely. We are all brothers and sisters. Like, this is about humanity. This is not about politics. When we're coming to call on the governor to veto bills, it's not because we're trying to push politics. We're trying to push humanity. You know what I mean? These bills are going to impact everyone across Georgia, whether you're white or black or Asian or Latino, Latinx, everyone. So 
when we are out here, um, yeah, I do see us all as a as a human race. And I, I do I will say though, to be honest, there were moments where we were out there and just to acknowledge it, I I looked around at our specific uh protest in front of the rings and a couple of those days, you know, it was like forty of us or around there and there were more white people than there were black people some of those days. And I just had I just I kinda like was like, Whoa, because it was, you know, it was just something to notice, you know, and so Personally speaking, I have never seen this many people who are non-African-American, non-Black, really try and join this fight in whatever way they can. And I'm not even talking about on the streets. I'm talking about finally speaking up in their companies, finally speaking up in their churches, speaking up in their families, speaking up in their friendship circles. So when you ask that question about the movement, you know, I do believe that there's a lot that about this movement that is very similar and that is the same when it comes to the civil rights movement in the 60s. But I also see some new layers as well um, in terms of sort of the, I guess, the, the magnitude of it. And, and, of course, the use of technology, because that also allows us to reach more as well. So let me, uh, let me ask, uh, w- within all of this, uh, a pragmatic question. I guess I'll come your way, Royce. I mean, it, it, what is, I mean, if you were going to pick something that's most important for people to either focus on or for you to do as an activist or people listening to understand about what's going on or support, what, what would it be? I mean, what is a very concrete thing that, that you think people just have to understand? That's a great question. Um, I think that there's a lot. I think we need to understand that as John Lewis showed through his entire life, you can fight with a clear sort of end goal in mind, but use different tactics and and look to get different wins along the way. Um, John Lewis is somebody who was continually on the right side of history at every stage in his life, whether it was in the 60s marching in Selma or voting against the 1994 crime bill or being arrested just in recent years protesting, um, supporting DREAMers, LGBTQ rights, et cetera. And so I think that there's a really important lesson to be learned there, which is that our tactics, our, our immediate goals will be changing as progress is achieved. But like John Lewis recognized, at no point in this country has the status quo been adequate. And so at every point, he has rejected it and done so by causing good trouble. So Kevin asked a great question. Hannah, if you specifically give us a couple of issues, just a couple of issues that are are motivating your ongoing now virtual demonstrations. What do you want resolved right now? Yeah, the number one thing is stop killing us. You know, we need to see an end to police brutality and unjust violence. You know, black people in America are dying at the hands of police officers every single day for simply being black, for eating a bag of Skittles, for taking a nap, for taking a nap in a Wendy's parking lot in Atlanta. You know what I mean? For activism, for for taking a job, for uh, going to the store, for getting behind the wheel. It's like anything we do. And so sickening. It's sickening and it needs to stop. And Representative John Lewis has been fighting for this since he was fighting. He's always talked about police brutality and how it needs to end. And years later, we're still fighting this fight. So when I think about him, when I hear his speeches and his messages, it's, it's empowering us to continue fighting for reform. And yes, let's be out in the streets. Let's, let's protest. Let's demonstrate. But let's also show up to the Capitol. Let's show up to the lawmakers' faces and, their, and make calls and email them and let them know what bills we oppose. Let them hear our pressure. Let them feel the community. Let them know that we're watching them, that them trying to pass bills that are going to continue to oppress communities and give police more and more uh, rights and incentives. We're not okay with that because that's going to continue perpetuating a system of hate and violence from police officers. So police reform and a a heavier push on legislation that will better support Georgians and all around the country. Uh, We've got to get to a break, but James, you've already mentioned voting is a huge issue for you at NAACP and and wanting honest, fair voting um, and maximizing the vote. Um, Give us another one. 
Most definitely. I have three very specific points of, of what we need to be focused on. Right, right now, as we're speaking, the, the president of the United States just suggested that, that we need to uh, extend the election or postpone the election because of fear of voting fraud. That is exactly one of the reasons why we are in this, 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 this situation. We have a democracy under attack. So elections, elections, elections. And if we don't have an election on, in November, I can guarantee you that all hell is going to break loose. Two, we need a repeal of citizens' arrest. We need a repeal because Ahmad Aubrey was literally killed using this. There are other instances. Ahmad's name is the highlight, but there are several other instances of this outdated racist statute being used to crim- to criminalize and ultimately justify the murder of black people. Third and finally, we need prosecutorial accountability. Jackie Johnson is a district attorney in Brunswick. Uh, George Barnhill is a district attorney in Waycross. Both of whom have done a a terrible job, and not just in Ahmad's case. There are several others that they've done a terrible job of doing their jobs of doing justice. And this process, it's been over. I don't. It's been over a hundred days since Ahmad's death. Over a hundred days, and the murderers are now in jail, in prison. However, uh, the prosecutors did not do their jobs, and so they have to go. And in fact, I think they should be arrested and criminal and criminally prosecuted themselves. So those are three specific things that we should be doing. So uh, James is quite right. The president, Washington Post moved a story a few minutes ago. So did a couple of other news organizations that President Trump uh, floated the idea that we should perhaps delay the November election because he's uh, worried about mail-in voting and how it might uh, uh, skew uh, the results. Um, we've got to get to a break. I, I should say, I know that there are going to be people who listen to the show who don't necessarily agree with everything that our panelists are saying today, and that's perfectly fine. But what I love about this show today is we're hearing the uh, passionate voices that have been inspired by uh, John Lewis, and every single one of them clearly is more than willing. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, uh, have a dialogue with you about uh, why you should hear their concerns. Uh, all right, let's get to our final break. We're really running short on time. We'll be right back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We are running way short of time for today's show, but um, I want to do a couple of quick things. Uh, Hannah Gebrselassie, I asked you to pick a couple of quotes from John Lewis that are meaningful to you. Can you share one of them at least with us right now? Absolutely, I will. Uh, these are just a couple of lines. This is from the March on Washington on August 28, 1963, just a portion of his speech. But he said, to those of you who have said, be patient and wait, we have long said that we cannot be patient. We do not have our freedom. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. And then, of course, the 50th anniversary of the Selma March, Bloody Sunday in 2015, Representative John Lewis said, we must use this moment to recommit ourselves to do all we can to finish the work. There's still a lot of work to be done. Get out there and push and pull until we redeem the soul of America. Beautiful. James, you said there was something that you uh, uh, found that met, was meaningful. Most definitely. The same speech from 63 on March in Washington and acts, where is the political party that will make it unnecessary to march in the streets of Birmingham? Where's the political party that will protect the citizens of Albany, Georgia. Do you know that in Albany, nine of our leaders have been indicted, not by the Democrats, but by the federal government. He understood the need for statewide strategy on how to save lives. It wasn't about just Atlanta. It was about the entire state of Georgia and really all of the nation. So that really embodies his body of work for me. That is James Woodall. He is the president of the Georgia NAACP and uh, one of the young leaders inspired by John Lewis. You just heard a minute ago. Hannah uh, Joy, Gebra Selassie, uh, she too, a uh, uh, p- political activist, and uh, we are very glad to have you be part of this show. Rice Mann, your poem at the King Day celebration was uh, one of the most moving calls for social justice I could imagine hearing in the hours before 
his funeral. Good luck at Emory University uh, in the fall. Thank you so much. And real quickly, I just wanted to add the last thing. We talked a lot about good trouble today, and I just wanted to remind everybody that usually when Congressman Lewis talks about good trouble, he also would call it necessary trouble. This isn't just work. Yes, good. It's good. It's work that we must do. Excellent. Kevin Riley, um, just a very quick uh, moment from you. Uh, you listen to young people uh, passionate about uh, social justice, and it's, uh, it's an inspiring thing uh, to hear. Yes? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm envious of the energy uh, and the youth both. So uh, I wish folks well as, as they work on, work on this and continue to be uh, active and uh, look forward. I hope we can talk to you again. We will talk to all of them again, I think. Um, All right, we're completely out of time for today's show. The John Lewis Funeral starts at 11. You can hear it right here on GPB Radio. On the show the other day, I mentioned that uh, there was a remarkable rendition of Amazing Grace by Whitley Phipps at the Rotunda of the United States Capitol. As we go out today, I thought we should listen to a little of Whitley Phipps as he sings that at John Lewis's celebration at the United States Capitol Rotunda. Thank you all for being here today. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, please take care and stay healthy. But now